Hello everybody, welcome back to another brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I am your casual criminalist, Simon, the host of this channel. Welcome, welcome. What happens here? One of my writers, in this case, Chris, thank you, Chris, has written me a script. It's called Operation Florida. When the manly police ran the drug trade. And I remember when Chris pitched this to me and I was like, Chris, this is all verified and checked out and I'm not going to be killed by, like, gangs, right? Because I once made a video and, uh, about some... I don't want to go into too many details, but I, I got some, like, very unpleasant threats for some very unpleasant people. And was like, oh my god, let's not, like, go into, like, real gangsters and stuff in real life again. <laughs> okay? Let's not do that. I, it was an unpleasant experience. And, as always, I'm not a journalist. And sometimes, like, the guys who write for me, they get a bit too, like, journalisty. It's like, yo, 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 I don't want to expose... <laughs> any crimes i don't i don't because i'll get blown up in a car i've got no interest in that that's not what i do i just read facts so chris wrote this he assures me that i'm not going to get killed he assures himself that he's not going to get killed which is nice i'm going to read it jen afterwards our video editor here i'm ready to die nobody's gonna die she's your audio editor if you're listening to the podcast version of this show she does her magic and uh it's a bit of a dream team isn't it leave us a review if you like what we do let's go To protect the guilty. This casual criminalist is a little bit different, as much of what we're going to be talking about today is directly known to the author. I grew up in Manly, in the neighborhood in question, and personally knew or know many of the main players. And while the set of crimes we're discussing have all gone through the courts, I'll still be obscuring some names and exact locations to protect those who've straightened up and built lives for themselves. As if I like I'd protect Simon from being murdered. Both you and Jennifer turn out fine! All the detailed accounts of criminal activity we're covering are either witnessed firsthand, heard directly from the perpetrators, or sourced from various documents, including the Operation Florida report to Parliament. Given my own involvement, I've also had to tiptoe around some specific incidents and actions. Be like, Chris, how do you know so much about it? I definitely wasn't via drugs. Definitely not. On a personal note, researching this one has been a bit of a revelation for me. Quite a lot of what the police and their informants were doing was dark to me, and many missing pieces have suddenly fallen into place. It's like my life at the time was what was happening off-camera in a cop show I'd never watched. So reading exactly what the police were up to has stitched everything together into a coherent narrative for the first time. So, I hope you all enjoy these stories from my old neighborhood, and I also sincerely hope that the cops don't decide to visit Simon's basement off the back of them. Yes, please don't. It's always like, I don't know, there were a couple of crimes I remember growing up. There was one, I mean, they sound all incredibly boring, like when you're like, oh my god, the police would like ruddy the drugs trade. But there was one, the most interesting crime that happened in my village. Someone drove a JCB, like, um, do, America, do you call this a backhoe? It's like uh, the, the, the thing with the scoop on the front that they use for digging stuff. I know Americans have a different name for this. And they just use one of those. They went, this, I grew up in like a tiny little village. They just went up to the, the supermarket in the village, this little mini supermarket, and just scooped the, uh, the, the, the cash machine, the ATM, right out of the wall and just drove off with it. And this was like the big crime in my village. And then another one was, I was at school and there was, the, there was a huge, ro it was like one of the biggest robberies ever. So I guess this one's more interesting. It was the Securitas raid. 
And uh, this happens like around the neighborhood where I lived, like in Kent. There was like money buried on a farm super close to where I went to school. There was also, and I have no idea if I'm just like misremembering this, but or if it's just one of those school legends, but there was definitely a rumor going around that one of the kids at my school whose dad was a bit dodgy was somehow involved in this or something. I'm not sure if that, that just feels like one of those things that, you know, school kids make up. But, uh... Yeah, I remember that. That was that was what we're talking about. Let's just get back to the bloody story. <laughs> a short tour of the northern beaches. It's about nine in the morning in Sydney's northern beaches suburb of Manly. Oh, okay. So sorry, I'm like northern beaches. It's like okay, it's, it's a it's a place, a specific place, a proper noun. Far from the affluent, hipster-riddled beachside resort that it is today, Manly in the 90s was a depressed backwater, a tourist spot originally designed for rural visitors now run to seed and riddled with crime and social problems. The ordinary business of the day is going on. A trickle of tourists from the city and western suburbs are debarking the ferry wharf. Disconsolate alcoholics, drug addicts, and beach bums are shuffling their way up and down the main thoroughfare, a broad paved mall called the Corso, running from the ocean beach to the wharf. The day drinkers in the Ivanhoe Hotel are getting into full swing, and the little cluster of dealers at the public benches down by the billiards hall are thinking about setting up trade for the day. <laughs> it's like we're painting a beautiful picture of a toll. Although I have to say, like, I always thought like being homeless and stuff, like, in like, you've got to go somewhere where the weather's nice. Like, this is Australia, right? So, like, manly, they've got a beach, there's beach. I feel like if you're homeless in like a beach place, you're a beach bum. It's like, no, I just choose to choose to camp at the beach. I'm not homeless, it's a lifestyle choice. But if I was gonna be homeless, I'd try and go somewhere warm. Like, that would be my plan. Because winter's not nice. Less than 200 meters away is the Manly Police Station. There's a bit of a commotion there, as a minor drug dealer, we'll call him Paul, is throwing grand bags of part of the facade, screaming, Come out and arrest me, you f dogs. It's now about one in the morning and we're in, oh my, oh, I've got a pronunciation guide. Taramara, Taramara a leafy, semi-rural suburb about 40 minutes' drive from Manly. Taramara was famous for weed plantations, meth labs, bikies. What's a bikie? This is... Australians have their whole other language of stuff. There are so... Like, everything is an E. Like a Barbie, whatever a bikie is. There's so much slang. It's incredible. And evangelical Christianity. Brilliant. <laughs> All those things, guys. I have no idea what a bike is. For me, it's like I imagine a, bike, a gang of people on bikes. Maybe like a biker gang. It was also mostly just paddocks at this time and a prime location for doofs or raves. Oh my god, Australia and your slang. My, my. For those who don't know, these are both types of illegal dance party. The doof we're concerned with is happening in a small forest clearing, with the DJ sitting in a demountable with an awning out the front. Why is it demountable, Chris? I love it how he explains some. Uh, Chris must just be like so Australian that he's like, yeah, this isn't, this is, you know, I'll explain this slang. And then there's another one, like a demountable. And it's like, okay, <laughs> I have no idea what he's sitting in. I have no, literally no idea. What did it demount from? This one's for the alternative crowd, and there's a scattering of goths and some Trustafarian types trying to dress like the natives and achieving a look part duck hunter and part prostitute. <laughs> there's also some hardcore ecstasy freaks gurning and sweating and milling their arms about like they do. Two young men are standing near the back of the crowd. They exchange a look and a nod, and then they pull police jackets out of their bags and put them on. They flick on torches, waving them about at eye level. One of them flashes a badge and shouts, Police! Everyone stay where you're 
you are. Panic and devastation follow, and within an improbably short time, pretty much everyone's disappeared into the tree line. A handful of the Trustafarian types have gone deer in headlights, however, and they stand looking pale and worried in the flickering, colorful lights no longer moving to the pounding house music still coming out of the speakers. Get the f out of here, you idiots, says one of the men, waving at them impatiently. They finally get the message and sprint off into the trees. Then both men put their jackets away and begin pricking up all the drug bags the fleeing dancers have dropped in their panic, chuckling as they work. This is actually a pretty smart con, isn't it? <laughs> Just dress up as a police officer. And everyone's like throwing their weed. It's like as if you get arrested, you don't want your drugs on you. So you're just like throwing that out of the place. They're pretty smart. Are we going to find out that these are actually real police officers though? Because, I mean, surely not. <laughs> We're back in Manly, in one of the areas behind the Corso. Slick with slimy, rotting garbage and plastered with graffiti. This is the back dock of a successful shop, and the night manager is finishing up his shift. He comes out, half in work uniform and half in his casual clothes, clearly in the process of getting ready to go out on the town. It might be three in the morning, but Manly at this time is blessed with no fewer than three 24-hour licensed premises, as well as a handful of speakeasies, so the party never really stops. He's got a backpack. Wait, if you've got 24-hour licensed premises, why do you need speakeasies? Why would someone be like, yeah, I'll go to the illegal place to drink rather than to the pub, which is open 24-7? Does that make any sense? He's got a backpack, and he's also carrying a small gym bag. He looks up at the camera over the back door and sighs. It's been smashed again. Just one more thing for him to do tomorrow. He's got about five meters to walk from the pool of light at the door to the darkness where his car is parked just outside the back door. He walks briskly, eyes up, and head on a swivel. But for all his alertness, he doesn't make it. Three men burst out of the shadows, and the lead man swings a short baseball bat into the back of his head. I have to say, like, all of this stuff, like... I know there are like rough areas and stuff, but it's been so long since I lived somewhere where I have to think. I don't know if Prague, where I live, is just a low crime city, but I've lived here for ages and I've. There's. N I don't even know if I've seen any crime, let alone been the victim of crime. I've never seen a mugging or someone getting beaten up. I've seen lots of drunk people shouting at each other, but that's just drunk people shouting at each other. I don't think I've ever really seen like a proper fight. I mean, I've, I guess like outside a pub and stuff, you'd see someone like getting into it a little. Oh, I was in a pub the other day, late, and someone got into a fight. And this was a fancy pub. It was a fancy bar. And I'm like, what is going on? This is, why is someone fighting in this fancy bar? <laughs> um, I didn't really understand. Apparently, it just got super drunk. But it's like, I would hate to live somewhere where it's kind of this crime. And like, I just, I'm, it, it can be like one o'clock in the morning. And I'm like walking back after having some drinks with my mates or whatever. And I'll just be listening to music. I won't be paying attention because I'm like, why would I? This, I'm not going to be the victim of a crime. Weird. Never really thought about it until I'm like, oh yeah, there are places which are horrible. Then the three spits off in different directions, leaving the night manager face down on the asphalt. An hour later, they're in an apartment a few miles out of town, divvying out the $10,000 in takings, which had been in the gym bag and which the manager had been able to about to deposit in a nearby night safe. What are you doing? It's how are you just wandering around with 10 grand in your pocket in the middle of the night in some dodgy neighborhood that's insane one of the men hands the shop keys to a 15 year old boy giving him detailed instructions as to what he should take when he uses them to rob the place you can keep the float but if you f me on any of the other stuff i'll come back here and kill you your missus and your dog he says pleasant chap 
A few hours later, and we're still in Manly, this time at, a at an apartment in the Manly National Building, a tall apartment complex which for some insane reason has been painted a livid shade of sky blue. Sitting out on a couch in one of the small split-level apartments is Cam. There are empty bottles scattered around the place, some powder on the coffee table, glasses and mugs on most surfaces. It's clear that there's been a moderately good party here the night before. Cam's a borderline addict, and he has been working to get his life together, and has been very excited about getting his deckhand qualification so he can in his own words north and go work on the trawlers this guy doesn't sound like he's really getting his life together it's by powder are we referring to cocaine because it sounds like he's had a wild ass party in his apartment and there's been a lot of cocaine usage <laughs> Good job so far, mate. This is probably what the party was celebrating. It's the cold light of day now, though, and someone's knocking on the door. Actually, he's pounding on it, yelling that he's the building manager and that he has to come in. Cam's not answering, though. He's just staring at the ceiling, mainly because he's been dead for several hours, having dipped just a little too much heroin into his system. Oh, now I feel bad. Because I was like, good job, mate, getting sober. It's really working out well, and now he's from heroin. So I sound like a bit of a The building manager uses his master key to enter the apartment, throws up, and runs back out again. Wait, the building manager has a key to your apartment? I live in an apartment building. The building manager definitely doesn't have a key to my apartment. I'll be like, what? No. Why would you have a key? That's weird. It's my apartment. You just run the building. <laughs> what are you doing? The cops are pretty unfussed by the whole thing. This is a region which produces dead youths at a pretty constant rate. Oh, brilliant. An overdose is probably the most boring, routine way in which it does. As they stretch the body away, there's a sense of tedium. Just one more damn thing to deal with. Cam's ga Cam's grapher, friends. Why is a grapher? What is going on? Head to a nearby skate park to create a memorial wall, a sort of memento mori, with his tag and some nice heartfelt pieces of art. It stays there for a while while the next few kids die and a space is needed for new memorials. I hate tags. People with tags. I assume we're referring to like graffiti tags. It's like, I, graffiti's fine. Graffiti is in many ways art. There are some nice bits of graffiti, but tagging? Whoever you are, if you're doing that, you're a right piece of The state of play. It should be clear that the kind of activity just described can't really be going on in any normal area that's being properly policed. Wait, parties, people dying of heroin overdoses? Um, yeah dude, they totally can all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Police don't stop people overdosing on heroin. And the Northern Beaches was very far from being Compton or downtown Detroit, so it was pretty clear to most at the time that policing must have been at least part of the problem. In response to this, Operation Florida was started by the New South Wales police officers from a variety of local area commands, or LACs, as well as the Armed Holdup Unit. After the Woodrow Commission of 1995 to 1997, when the infamous detective Roger Rogerson was outed for running a criminal fiefdom in King's Cross, there was a sense in the public that corruption problems had been solved. <laughs> yeah. We got the guy. We got the one corrupt guy. There is no more corruption. Everyone on the outside is like, yay, great. Everyone in the inside is like, yeah, yeah, sure, great, yeah. Yeah, definitely no more corruption. Especially the corrupt people. They're like, there's no more corruption. What are you talking about? How much is it going to cost to make this go away? 
But the thing about Sydney is that it's huge. It's ranked as one of the top 10 most connected cities in the world. While it's only got 5 million people in it, only. That's a huge city. The whole area of Greater Sydney is more than 12,000 square kilometers or 4,500 square miles. For comparison, Greater London covers 1,500 square kilometers. A city this size is always a diverse collection of radically different towns and villages all sprawling outward from the shiny skyline of the city center. That means even if you rip out a corrupt police force from one area, there's still dozens more. Yeah, exactly. There's not gonna, you're not going to eliminate corruption by getting rid of one guy. Combine this with the fact that while criminals rarely move, police are posted to different areas all the time. The whole undertaking basically becomes a game of whack-a-mole, one of the bigger moles to whack with the LACs covering the northern beaches. I have to say, I'm always a bit surprised when you hear about police corruption. Like, let's take the UK as an example. Like, I mean, obviously, like, police corruption at a very high level, I imagine, does exist. But, like, the idea of, like, police becoming involved in, like, low-level... I guess this is going to be some high-level stuff. Because there's not low-level. Like, if you... I don't know. When I was backpacking around Asia, not that I ever did this, but it would be like, yeah, you get pulled over, and they're like, where's your helmet? You know, where's your... You, you were speeding. And I feel like half of it is just a grift from the police being like, yeah, 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 there's a fine, and you're like, okay... The fine's just going right in your pocket, isn't it? So, like, I get it because the policeman doesn't make that much money and he's just taking some money off a tourist or whatever. Fine. Uh, but, like, the idea in the UK is like the police pull you over and you're like, how much to make this go is, is insane. It's an insane concept. So, I guess, like, I don't know what my point here is. Just, like, low-level... This is not going to be some low-level corruption. But then the, if it's actually police going to a drug raid and stealing drugs off teenagers dancing in the forest... That feels like some low-level stuff where it's like, why would they do that when the risk is so high? Because not only are you throwing your entire career away, you're throwing away your pension, which I understand police have. Like, my, my uncle was a policeman. He was a detective. And he got to retire super early and you get a nice big pension. It's like, why would you throw that away? Just for, like, a few pounds from, like, drugs. It makes no sense. The Northern Beaches, as the name suggests, is a stretch of beachside land north of the centre of Sydney. It stretches from the northern entrance of Sydney Harbour, where Manly is, all the way up to Palm Beach, and as far inland as Karingai Chase National Park. The Northern Beaches cover about 250 square kilometres, and they're home to about a quarter of a million residents. Apart from the many beaches along its Pacific coast, the semi-rural areas, light industrial, a whole lot of suburbs, and some forested stretches. It also is relatively sparse populated. I'm not talking the Mongolian steppe or anything crazy like that, but the population density in this area is about half the city's average. Unlike most of Sydney, people here mostly lived in thatched houses or on big blocks of land. It all sounds quite nice. I mean, if you're in like one of these, like, you know, in my mind, it's like this beach, it's Australia, so it's warm, it's kind of out of the city, but there's still stuff around. And then Chris is going to be like, and it was filled with crime. You're like, oh, come on. It had so much going for it. What all this very dry demographics and geography adds up to is that it could be quite a difficult place to police. The distances are long, and there's a near limitless number of places where business can be conducted away from prying eyes. During the period we're talking about, the mid to late 90s, there was quite a bit of business happening in and around Manly. There were several crews, including bikies, involved in the bulk supply of amphetamines, including some ethnic syndicates, some lone wolf operators, and the gay mafia. The, uh, okay, I always thought that was a joke. But 
I guess there is a gay mafia. These last were not anything like a mafia, really, but were just a loose group of clubland and city types. Heroin was coming in through Port Botany in Sydney in huge amounts. Importation was handled by an odd assortment of Chinese triads, especially 14K, Vietnamese syndicates, Middle Eastern ethnic groups, and some lone wolves. And of course, some bikies, though the members I knew swore blind that the clubs themselves didn't condone this traffic. What is a bikey, Chris? <laughs> by far the biggest... I'm looking it up. Bikey, Australian slang. Bike gangs, so-called outlaw bike gangs. There we go. Bikies, mate. Crocky. It's a barky. Doesn't really rhyme, does it? Let's get on. By far and away, the biggest and most established market was for marijuana, and in the 90s, basically everyone and their dog had spent at least some time selling gram bags at the very least. <laughs> Chris, is this your way of saying that you were a drug dealer? <laughs> the more than a, this more than anything was the local business, and in the words of Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about that. So yes, <laughs> yes it was. It's worth noting that Sydney, as a rule, doesn't have the same kind of organized crime that you find in places like America or Europe. While there are definitely clusters of all your classic organized crime groups, mafia, triads, bikies, etc., they don't have the same kind of reach or control as they do in places like Juarez or New York. Sustained organized crime in Sydney tends to be more laissez-faire, with syndicates of friend-family groups vying against each other in a more or less open market. Yeah, this sounds really different to like Juarez, which... I read a book that was like partly set in Juarez and I was like, oh my god, if this is even just a little bit true, I don't like it. I think I stopped reading the book because I was like, this is horrible. It's like the Juarez is, is that border town uh, in northern Mexico where wasn't there one other thing where it's like there was a bridge and then one morning the police came out and there were just loads of dead people just hung over the bridge because they were enemies of a gang and then a bunch of children went missing and then it's like people are just murdered all the time. Juarez, man. Don't go there. There are some international players and a handful of serious and well-equipped crime families, but for the most part, it's a loose demi-monde of local crews, hustlers, survivors, hobbyists, and mad dog loners. The northern beaches at the time were becoming more ethnically diverse as well. This isn't saying much, though. It's always been a predominantly white area, with big islands of affluence sitting uneasily next to its poorer pockets. In the mid-90s, an influx of Pacific Islanders, Maori, Lebanese, and Southeast Asians into Sydney took the neighborhood from 99% Caucasian to about 97%, but even such a small change was highly visible, especially as the Pacific Islanders chose to settle in large family groups in Manly and its surrounds. These groups didn't integrate entirely comfortably with the long-term local crews, and there was the inevitable ethnic violence and gang formation. By the early 2000s, however, things had settled into a comfortable hierarchy. At the top of the food were the clean skins. Various syndicates, both organized and lone wolf, who took care of the commercial side. Below them were the Big Connects, a surprisingly large and diverse number of people who made their living by selling wholesale quantities to small-time dealers. And right at the bottom of the food chain were the small-timers. Some of these were local surfies, or one of the many neighborhood street crews, or most forlorn of all, the lone user dealers buying the smallest wholesale weights on credit, getting high on their own supply, and barely breaking even every few days or weeks. Besides the drug trade, there were a few armed robbery crews hitting armored trucks, shops, and drug dealers, and doing ram raids, as well as organized burglary and shoplifting teams called shoppers. Oh my god. Manly sounds horrible. <laughs> so much crime. It's, like, it's so organized. There were also the steamers as well, small groups who would go into a bank wearing ball caps and sunglasses, jump the counter, and clear out the cash drawers, keeping their heads down for the cameras the whole time. And then there are the miscellaneous crimes. Gang assaults, property destruction, arson and insurance fraud, underage prostitution and all the other dreary assortment associated with neighborhoods where police have surrendered the streets. This feels like Juarez, Chris, not like some town in Australia. Chem Street. 
It's a bright sunny day in Manly. The autumn sun sits serenely in a cloudless indigo sky, and seabirds wheel lazily over the wharfs and jetties of the ferry terminal. At the southern end of the Corso are a set of public benches outside a billiards hall, a chemist, and a supermarket. Even though it's May, the chemist is playing Christmas carols over a loudspeaker at ear-bleeding volume, a vain attempt to disperse the 20 or so street dealers and local rats who gather outside their store every day. There's a vertical banner next to the store reading Chemist, which some witty local has vandalized scraping off the eye, so the sign reads Chem ST. Hilarious, am I missing a joke? <laughs> On a normal morning, the crew would be loitering around the benches, selling grams, half weights, quarts, or eight balls to pass by, and generally being loud, wearing sports brands, and being a menace to society. Today, however, they're all lined up against the wall of the chemist, and Detective Senior Constable Dave Patterson is leading a couple of uniformed officers in a search. One of the suspects is our friend Paul, who we saw earlier throwing grams of pot at the police station. Oh, the insane dude, what was he up to? Paul isn't being cooperative, so a couple of officers force him to face down on the ground, spreading him and begin patting him down. As part of the process, they hitch up the cuffs of his tracksuit pants and everyone can see a massive bulge in his left sock. There must be at least an ounce of gram bag stuffed into that sock, but the coppers deliberately pat around it, then drag him to his feet and murmur something in his ear. Then, as if on cue, they all walk away without completing any other searches. At that point, Paul goes completely spare. F*** you, you f***ing dogs, he screams. Come back here, I'll give you dogs what you want. He pulls the ounce out of his sock and waves it at the backs of the departing police officers claiming to have had sexual congress with their mothers and daring them to arrest him at the top of his voice what is going on what did they say to him why would he what detective senior constable dave patterson joined the new south wales police force in 1978 he was a uniformed general duties officer for seven years before transferring to plain clothes in 1985. by 1996 patterson had done some time in the armored holdup unit the ahu and the major crime squad north drug unit mcsn the mcsn operated in the area directly adjacent to the northern beaches in 1996 he was transferred to manly under a cloud having been accused of inappropriate dealings with drug traffickers okay i mean i i guess he was just accused and then he got transferred away okay but let's keep an eye on that dude by the time patterson came to manly he already had a long history of corrupt conduct I don't understand. How can you have a long history of corrupt conduct as a police officer and still be a police officer? Isn't that when you have to go work for a security company and you talk about how you used to be a police officer, but then you, you know, were corrupt and now you have to work security at the supermarket? Starting with accepting a payoff when he was still a junior constable, Patterson graduated to stealing money from raids on properties and beating suspects for confessions. Again, how is this guy still a police officer? He wasn't alone in this, though. Throughout the 80s and 90s, the armored holdup unit was well known for this and would always tell newcomers that an arrest by that division generally came with a beating. Patterson was also involved in verbaling suspects. To verbal a suspect in Australian slang means to frame them. Planting evidence like firearms or drugs is called loading, and a bribe was either a drink or a tickle. A dog is interchangeably either an informant or a police officer. Patterson would falsify confessions in notebook interviews, i.e. questioning, which happens outside an interview room and is recorded in a police notebook. Or sometimes it just fabricate the whole interview. How are you still a police officer? How is this going on in Australia? Australia, you're like a big modern 
rich country. This isn't Juarez, my guys. Come on. The AHU at the time also get various stashes of firearms, which they'd use to plant on suspects. On one particular occasion, AHU officers dumped a bag of firearms into the Hawkesbury River, fabricated a confession from someone they had in custody, and then sent a dive team out to find it before charging the suspect with firearms offenses. There's no evidence Patterson was directly involved in this activity, but it seems likely he would have at least been aware of it. While he was in the MSCN, Patterson routinely stole money and drugs from police raids, taking advantage of lax supervision practices. Would there were any supervision practices? I mean, holy he was also involved in green lighting, where a criminal is given a so-called green light to conduct their activities on the understanding that the police will turn a blind eye. The typical rent charge to a dealer or thief for a green light was between $500 and $1,000 per week. So if you're a drug dealer, you could pay the police $1,000 a week and they'll just be like, no, 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 he's cool. When is this happening? Where is this happening? I'm so disappointed in you, manly Australia. Patterson claims he didn't engage in corruption in the first couple of years after his transfer to manly. <laughs> Like, no, I had a couple of years of being a good cop out of my entire career. But by 1998, his past seemed to be catching up with him. He was barred from participating in drug investigations for a period of six months. I don't understand! Is anyone else with me? That Am I just completely ignorant of how f the police are? But, like, how can this happen? And he's caught with, he's bought, like, he was being dodgy with drug dealers. And they're like, well, let's just not have him on drugs. Let's put him on, like, some other crimes. Let's put him... It's like, how on earth do you not think he's also going to be a bad cop on the other crimes? That's insane thinking. He needs to be in prison. He was also subject to proceedings under Section 181D of the Police Act, an administrative process used to expel officers from the police force. He was able... How about we expel him by putting him in prison? He was able to defeat the 181D proceeding and also lift the restriction on his duties after receiving a positive report from the station's crime manager, one Detective Sergeant Ray Peedy. Peedy joined the police in the mid-70s and, unlike Patterson, became a plainclothes detective quite early in his career. According to his testimony, his first act of corruption was in 1980, when he was part of 21 Division. It's making it sound so normal, like, yeah, no, 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 I was, uh, I did my first corruption in 81. I remember it well, it was a warm, sunny afternoon, and I, uh, a, a drug dealer paid me off. My next corruption followed shortly after. It's just like he's telling a story. <laughs> this is, shouldn't be normal. One day, 21 Division raided an illegal gambling den known colloquially as a card school. After the raid was over, a senior constable handed him $100 and he took it, no questions asked. From these humble beginnings, PD's corrupt conduct blossomed. Yeah, although I also like understand, like police officers not particularly brilliantly paid. And if you're like busting open some card hall and there's just piles of untraceable cash in that back room that no one is going to know is missing and definitely no one is going to report i mean i i i like to think i wouldn't but it's you, it's got to be tempting right and then you go from like i don't know taking a hundred dollars you know just i'll, I'll take that 100 dollar australian bill slide that into my pocket and the next thing you know you're doing it and it's like oh yeah okay well let me just take a fatter stack and the next thing you know you're getting paid off and the next thing you know you're i don't know running a drug cartel maybe probably not but it's not good between 1984 and 1991 pd routinely engaged in verbaling suspects that was uh australian slang for framing them mm, I'm, I'm working on my australian slang so routinely that he couldn't remember when questioned how many people had framed holy <laughs> all he could offer the commission was that it happened regularly but not every day I'm not framing people every day. That would make me a monster. Maybe three times a week. 
He habitually made false statements, fabricated records of interviews which were used, often successfully, to prosecute suspects, and also fabricated briefs of evidence. When he was in command of the Manly and Collaroy District Drug Unit from 1989 to 1991, Petey routinely stole thousands of dollars from dealers while conducting drug raids. During his time as crime manager, a position which effectively, if not technically, amounted to being chief detective, Petey was in charge of the local area corruption prevention plan. You have got to be sh me. He also would use police fuel cards to fill up his own personal vehicles. <laughs> that doesn't feel like the big. <laughs> Is there no stealing thousands of dollars from drug dealers? Was hugely corrupt and became in charge of like anti-corruption. And he also uh, he also used he also used the police credit card to fill up his personal vehicle. <laughs> I was like, I mean, okay, yes, obviously that's wrong. Doing that should be enough to get you fired. But it feels very minor in this guy's, like, career of corruption and crime. While this isn't exactly the crime of the century, I think it's illustrative of character. A man who's already raking in tens of thousands of dollars in bribes yet still feels the need to steal a tank of gas from the taxpayer. Yes. That should definitely be enough as a policeman to get you fired. Because it speaks to your moral character of being a piece of I mean, to be honest, I don't think if, if you shouldn't be allowed to do that any as a person, definitely not. I mean, that that would get you fired from a job, right? If your employer gave you a co company card and said, "Okay, you're driving up to Manchester." You know, here's the company card, use it to fill up your car. I don't know how this works, but let's assume that's how it works. And then it's like you just uh, like kept that and filled up your car a few more times, and then you handed it back to your boss, and then accounting were like, "Uh, how much petrol did you use?" You would absolutely get fired because you're stealing. So how is... My mind is just blown by the incompetence. It seems that it didn't take very long for Patterson and Beedy to start forming a corrupt alliance in Manly Police Station. It wasn't just Manly. There were a bunch of other officers, Jasper, Messenger, Hill, and Davidson, among others. These men were spread out between Manly and nearby DY. I vaguely remember Constable Davidson. He was the most junior of the bunch and had a good rapport with most of the locals. I never personally came across Jasper, Messenger, or Hill, but I heard about Detective Senior Constable Jasper quite frequently. The word on the street was that if you had to get arrested, you could make a deal with Jasper or Patterson. Patterson was reputed to be expensive but reliable, whereas Jasper was rumored to be cheap but unpredictable. This would feel like you're playing a game. In any event, Patterson was everywhere and was definitely the most active of the lot. Elements of the New South Wales police force earned a justified reputation for appalling corruption all through the 70s and 80s. No. The King's Cross detectives mentioned earlier were the highest profile cases, but Manly police weren't slacking off during this period either. In 1991, a group of detectives stole up to $30,000 from a single raid on a hotel room in the Manly Pacific, a hotel which was incidentally owned by a man who'd murdered his wife and then claimed that she'd been assassinated by gangland figures through the 90s. This is so, it's like Juarez! Through the 90s, under the management of Ray Petey, a culture of bribe-taking and theft persisted. This was totally unchecked by the local area commander, a man named Superintendent Gary Raymond. Raymond oversaw, oversaw Manly's police station operations, but was wasn't stationed there in his whole time as LAC. He never once watched a video recording of his officers' raids or attended one in person. If he had, he would have noticed that many of these recordings had never been made, and of those which had, there were only brief periods of the raid actually recorded. They go in, there's a pile of money, and the camera, they're like, turn off the cameras, turn off the cameras! 
I wonder what happens next. Superintendent Raymond also relied on PT's reports to satisfy himself that raids were being conducted in accordance with standard operating procedures (SOPs). It seems that he never took concrete steps to check this, though, as PT himself testified that he didn't actually know them, mostly because he never read them. In his own defense, Superintendent Raymond pointed out that the corrupt officers in question were hard to catch because they were sneaky. He also said that he didn't think anyone would behave that way so soon after the Royal Commission, and that he put up posters all over the station warning against corruption, and that his weekly and monthly reports coming from PT and from the duty officer indicated that the situation was improving. Again, it's just an extraordinary level of incompetence. So this dude, who is in charge, this is like an area commander, so he seems to be some sort of senior policeman, is literally like, yeah, yeah, I know there's no corruption, because I asked them. I said, yo, is there any corruption there? Nah, mate, no corruption. And he's like, cool. And he's like, dude, I also put up posters that said corruption is bad and don't do it. And the police officers must have seen them because there's no corruption. This is insanity. <laughs> they're too. And he also said, they're too sneaky for me. They turned the cameras off during raids where there was money around. That doesn't seem very sneaky. It's uh, what I would call blatantly obvious. The good news is if this YouTube thing and podcast thing doesn't work out for me, I'm fairly sure I could be an excellent consultant here. Just be like, guys, yo, yo, yo. How about we don't assume that the posters are doing anything? How about you uh, see if there's some tapes? Just a suggestion. It's important to mention that the Operation Florida Commission didn't find any indication that Superintendent Raymond himself was corrupt. It was, however, highly critical of his management practices. Yeah, I don't know if this guy, we definitely don't know if this guy's corrupt. It's just like, in my opinion, he just seems extremely incompetent. It seems strange to me that they were able to detect any. Just like literally nut. This guy did no management. In this somewhat lax management environment, Patterson was effectively under the command of Sergeant Petey. Petey gave him a clean bill of health and glowing reports over and over again. By 1999, Patterson, a copper who'd been under suspicion of drug-related corruption, had been specifically assigned to deal with the backlog of drug investigations at Manly Police. This was a long list, mostly concerned with the holy trinity of Northern Beach's drug-taking at the time, ecstasy, heroin, and marijuana. Today, Patterson, it must have basically looked like a shopping list. As someone who's been at both ends of drug raids, oh sh Chris, no jokes. Wait, so you were also conducting a drug raid? <laughs> How many people have been on both sides? It's like, yeah, yeah, I've conducted drug raids and also been raided. Sh I'm quite familiar with how they're supposed to go. It's important to understand what's supposed to happen in order to uh, get to just how egregious the conduct of these police officers was. So please bear in mind as we go through some dry police procedure. Okay, okay. Let's see how long you keep my attention, Chris, because my attention is the audience's attention. First of all, a warrant needs to be obtained. This requires the submission of a brief of evidence and or statements by the investigating officers. These need to reach a certain threshold of evidence such that the court will approve a search of premises in question. Once you've got that warrant, you need to gather up a team. This might mean liaising with police dog squad or the special weapons group, the Australian equivalent of SWAT, or specialists from anti-drug units such as the MCSN. Most importantly, however, there needs to be an independent officer who must be from outside the investigation, and preferably not from the station conducting the search. This independent officer is there to see fair play, to supervise the search team, and to generally ensure no coercion, corruption, or breaks in the chain of evidence occur. And finally, there needs to be a video and exhibit officer whose job it is to record the whole raid as a further guarantee of no breaks in the chain of evidence. The chain of evidence, for those who don't know, is basically the careful recording of every person who has had possession of every piece of evidence from the moment it's found to the moment it's destroyed or returned. Yeah, of course, this is uh, always comes up on CSI. 
you know they're like if there is like oh no they they screw up this i think this happens in real life as well it's like a defense lawyer will be like yeah basically they've got you it's like you <laughs> you murdered this person absolutely so they'll just look for like um errors in the police work so that they can get them off on like a technicality or something which you know is smart lawyering but it's also oh no but you're working to set a murderer free aren't you lawyer <laughs> this isn't good but obviously everyone deserves a, sh a fair shake the idea being that every piece of evidence can be accounted for and tracked for every second that it's in the hands of the police yes this makes perfect sense and it's crazy that they were just like not checking that there were videos of all of this stuff when and i mean i feel like i focused a lot on them stealing the drugs and the money in this kind of like for that self-interested police officer corruption but also what is worse is that they're like baking things and planting evidence and sending innocent people to prison that's really intense. So that's how it works in theory. In practice, many of the raids conducted by Manly police were subject to extraordinary laxness. Ray Petey himself testified, you can't do everything exactly by the book or you'd be there half a day every time. And Petey would know as he was frequently designated as the independent officer on searches conducted by Dave Patterson and others. So the dude with a history of drug corruption is the guy making sure that there's no drug corruption on raids incredible guys constable davison who is usually the video and exhibit officer testified that instead of recording everything as was his lawful duty it only switched on the camera when told to by jasper or patterson or messenger <laughs> so they go yeah there's no money here all right mate turn on the camera on numerous occasions they didn't even bring a camera at all but when they did they only recorded fragments of the raid which must have made it easier on the numerous occasions when they'd check the footage in the middle of a search to determine whether they could safely steal what they'd found one fateful day in may of 2000 patterson jasper davidson and an officer codenamed m5 raided the property of one lake benbow benbow when he saw the cops coming chucked four pounds or about two kilograms of pot out of the window into the next door neighbor's yard the cops executed their warrants and the independent officer one inspector lee surf headed out to the balcony to hang out with bembo's brother in the meantime patterson and go went through the house and found a small amount of cannabis and some steroids alone and completely unsupervised patterson went down into the laundry and found forty thousand dollars in a dirty sock which he pocketed when all was over luke benbo was arrested for possession and taken off to the station to be charged on the trip back from the station patterson told luke about the money and told him that the police would be taking most of it whereas a small amount would be returned to him patterson also instructed him to pick up the kilos from his neighbor's yard he then gave luke 10 grand back before distributing the remaining 30 between himself jasper and m5 but why you might be thinking why did none of this skullduggery get caught on the raid recording well because there was no raid recording well, because according to Davidson, the battery on the camera was flat. As exhibits officer, Davidson was also meant to record any cash or illicit substances found, but there are no such records for this search, so presumably the battery on his pen was flat too. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Or, or horrible corruption. A few months later, in August, the police officer codenamed M5 hits Luke again, this time with a vehicular stop and search. He found just under a pound of weed and another 30 grand. This time, the money was seized by the book, and Luke was charged with having goods in custody on the basis that the money was the proceeds of crime. According to Luke, however, it seems that M5 also stole a further kilo of pot over and above what was logged. <laughs> Holy s. 
he's not gonna sell it right because you can't be a cop selling weed but you can't like i mean that's a lot of weed that's a lot of smoking Patterson and m5 both approached luke and told him he could continue dealing drugs so long as he paid a tax <laughs> various extortionate figures were bandied about but they eventually settled on two grand a month and an introduction to another dealer vince kakamo who could get a wholesale weed to him more cheaply how on earth is two grand a month expensive you found him one time with 40 grand and then a couple of months later you find him with another 30 grand and so you can pay the cops two grand a month and then you're like clean and free and you don't have to worry about the police which i imagine is your biggest worry as a drug dealer other than getting killed by other drug dealers two grand a month sounds like an absolute bargain <laughs> if you're rich two grand a month they'd be like yeah wait two grand i just get our parking tickets and speeding fines that <laughs> worth it so they're introduced to vince kakama who could get wholesale weed to him more cheaply vince was a mid-level heroin dealer who patterson had been green lighting for quite some time green lighting where they is where they take the money so he doesn't get arrested on top of this patterson hooked luke up with a solicitor martin green an old mate of his who'd started out as a police officer became a police prosecutor and finally a defense solicitor green and patterson allegedly cooked up a scheme whereby luke would create false invoices in the amount which had been seized patterson would then investigate these invoices recommends the goods in custody be dropped and then get the money returned to Luke wait what how do you have invoices when the police I guess it must be some other type of invoice compared to like the one you get when you buy something um okay minus a fee of course we need to point out that Martin Green denies any of this but it's also worth pointing out that the Commission has put on the record that they don't believe him now Luke was really yeah but just because they said they don't believe him doesn't mean he's guilty it's just you know innocent till proven guilty all of that good stuff now luke wasn't really a hardened criminal he was a plumber still is and was mostly an ordinary decent citizen caught up in the wrong crowd didn't he have 30 grand in his car <laughs> dude and he was paying off the police two grand a month that sounds quite crimey doesn't it so when he found himself being harassed by corrupt police officers he got scared and went straight to the nsw crime commission who promised him a significant discount on his sentence if he agreed to assist them in the conduct of operation florida at around the same time the officer m5 who'd been living off the fat of the land so to speak for years started to get a bit jittery to his mind officers like patterson and messenger were far too blatant and high risk and it also heard rumors that there were multiple informants working with the state crime commission on an investigation into corrupt police i oh, went if you're a corrupt police are it's like oh no there's an investigation into corrupt police ah, i'm gonna lose my job and i'm gonna go to prison and i'm gonna be a police officer in prison and we put all these people in prison ah oh, it's gonna be bad that's another thing as a police officer why you shouldn't be committing crimes because i don't imagine being a police officer in prison is that fun to be honest i mean prison's not fun but at least if you're a criminal in prison i mean obviously a police officer criminal but you're also a police officer they'd be like hey mate you put me here I'm gonna beat your face in <laughs> and no one's going to care i personally remember that rumors were rife about something called eagle net which turned out to be a subset of operation florida i believe there were multiple attempts some clearly successful to turn some of the locals which is why the name of the operation was floating through the streets i remember about this time seeing manly detectives swaggering around the streets in shirt sleeves weapons on display exchanging greetings with local hoods and shaking down the bars and clubs on one occasion patterson stopped me and one of my associates on the road out of manly they had a friendly chat while patterson searched him before carefully counting out the money he had on him and pocketing about half of it before sending us on our way oh my god this is so mad can you imagine a police officer doing that to you 
You'd be like, what? Surely I just report this to the big police boss. This happens in broad daylight by the side of a busy road. With all this nonsense going on, it's no wonder M5 decided to cut his losses and approach the crime commission to confess to his own corrupt conduct and offer assistance to the Operation Florida investigation. And that's why he's, I had a feeling this whole time. That's why he's got this code name of M5, because he's the one who turned. And uh, so he's been protected. The Sting. I've mainly focused on a few key players, favoring those who are personally known to me and are in the public record. But it's important to remember that this was a massive operation covering multiple police units and LACs. There were more than a dozen informants, many designated code names such as M1 or G2 and so on. In fact, informant M1 was generally agreed to be the most instrumental, but I haven't mentioned him at all, partly because I don't exactly know who they are, and partly because I believe that their life would be in danger if anyone uncovered their identity. On the manly side of things, the Police Integrity Commission, in conjunction with the State Crime Commission, set up a series of what they called integrity tests. For some of these, Luke Benburn and Vince Carmo would have had conversations with corrupt officers while wearing a wire. The police officer, codenamed M5, would do the same, as well as accompanying them on raids and recording what was said. On one occasion, the commission rented out an apartment in Manly and planted 100 grams of green vegetable matter, money, and stolen DVD players in it. Bear in mind that this is the late 90s when DVD players were quite expensive. A female undercover officer was assigned to play the occupant of these premises, the girlfriend of a fictitious male suspected of being a drug trafficker. The raid was conducted by our old friends M5, Patterson, and Davidson, with the independent officer being another corrupt detective called Hill. Covert cameras in the apartment caught Patterson stuffing six grams in cash down his shorts. Roughly three quarters of the planted money. Uh oh! They also caught Davison discharging his duties as video and exhibits officer by simply placing his video camera on the kitchen table without turning it on. Listening devices captured recordings of Patterson claiming to have only stolen four grand instead of six, divvying up the cash between all of them. He's double corrupt. He's like stealing money he's, as corruption and then he's cheating his friends out of it. <laughs> Everyone's gonna hate you. Hill was given $300 and Davidson too. Later, Jasper, the cheap but unreliable copper if you'll remember, submitted false evidence paperwork claiming that the DVD players had been returned to their owners so he could nick one and give it to his girlfriend. <laughs> Further integrity tests were set up at different locations and on each and every occasion, Patterson, Messenger, Jasper and co would either steal the money or the drugs or both. Isn't this, I feel like this is not allowed in some places isn't this like entrapment where it's like they're purposefully trying to lure these guys into committing a crime um like by making it like a honeypot or whatever i don't know i don't really have a problem with it this seems totally fine because it's just like we need to prove that these guys who we're pretty sure are corrupt are actually corrupt and it's like yeah they are they were also recorded by m5 talking about their green lighting activity on tape and cutting deals to get information on investigations which would be helpful to their pet dealers and or thieves so blatant and routine were their activities that it was only a very short time before the police integrity commission was able to arrest and charge david patterson and ray Beatty with the rest of the merry men following shortly after almost all of the officers involved ended up confessing to what could be directly proved against them what this amounted to was the fact that patterson messenger and jasper had been routinely stealing both drugs and money from searches over and above this jasper and patterson had both been greenlighting criminals both drug dealers and burglars and armed robbers they would put them onto good scores like the store robbery described at the very beginning of this episode hook dealers up with each other and tell them where police buy blind spots were likely to occur all in exchange 
for regular fees. PD, who is nominally in charge of all of these fine officers, would turn a blind eye in exchange for regularly be given, being given 10 to 20 percent of the proceeds. Davidson, who didn't really seem to be involved much in all of this, was basically given 5 to 10 percent of each cut just for keeping his mouth shut about the irregularities. When questioned by the commission, Davidson could only explain accepting this money by saying, They were my friends, so I just sort of accepted it. I personally know that there was much, much more. Patterson and Jasper especially maintained a very busy pattern of what amounted to police harassment, searching people and premises, taking the cash and drugs, and then selling it on to their pet dealers. Okay, so that's how they're getting rid of the drugs they steal. They just sell it. That's... So they're drug dealers. They're corrupt police drug dealers. This is mental. The two mentions, Luke and Vince, couldn't really be put in this category. They resisted Patterson's approaches as best they could, but their backs were against the wall. They quickly went to the proper authorities to report corruption and assist in the investigation. In fact, a bit of local pride swelled in my heart when I was reading the Operation Florida report on the sheer number of local dealers who didn't want a bar of working for the police. They paid for it with custodial sentences or being continually robbed, but they stood staunch and simply refused. I can only assume that some or all of the many codenamed informants were Dave Patterson people. And with that, I need to go all Forrest Gump and say, that's all I have to say about that. In any event, the dominoes fell quite quickly for Patterson and his fellow bad apples. They were at first suspended with pay for the duration of the investigation, and then without pay once they started making admissions and charges started being brought against them. The years of high-handedness and naked greed with which they'd threatened verbals and assaulted the Northern Beaches criminal community worked against them as well, with dozens of witnesses coming out of the woodwork to point the finger and get their own back. In the end, pretty much every officer who'd been slightly involved in corruption, including one poor bloke who just abused his power to skate on a drink-driving charge, were hauled up in front of the Commission of Inquiry and charged with their crimes. Wrap up. For his efforts in helping out on Operation Florida, Luke Benbow was given a two-year suspended sentence and the commission recommended no further criminal investigations be mounted against him. Vince Kakamo was sentenced to eight years with a five-year non-parole period for a set of offenses which would ordinarily have got him a 15-year sentence. He was also given a clean slate in that it was recommended no further criminal investigations be conducted regarding his activities at the time. Both Luke and Vince have paid their debt and moved on from their past crimes. Detective Constable Davidson, the video and exhibits officer was sentenced to four concurrent 18-month prison terms for accepting bribes with a non-parole period of nine months. He was also dismissed from the police force. So he, the guy he spent 18 months in prison and lost his job, and he was just blatantly turning off the camera while they were stealing all this money and being horribly corrupt. That doesn't seem like a bad sentence. Jasper was convicted of perverting the course of justice, allowing heroin traffic, receiving bribes, and various other offenses. He was dismissed from the police force and sentenced to seven years in prison with non-parole period of five years. He was also ordered to repay nearly $40,000 in bribes. That seems a bit more appropriate. Seven years is a long... That's that's long. Messenger was sentenced to five years with a non-parole period of three years for receiving stolen goods, receiving bribes, and giving false evidence. He was ordered to repay $1,500 in bribes to New South Wales Treasury. Patterson quite rightly had the books thrown at him. He was sentenced to seven years imprisonment for a raft of offenses, including perverting the course of justice, giving false evidence, allowing drug trafficking to take place, and a few others. His non-parole period was five years, and he was ordered to pay the Treasury nearly $60,000 in bribes and corrupt income. It's estimated he would have cleared about $400,000 over the course of his career. These these don't seem like the seven years. I have a feeling if this was like an American story, it'd be like, and then he was sentenced to 237 years in prison. <laughs>
I mean, doesn't it? Don't you feel that? PDU rolled over, in the words of the commission, provided significant assistance to the investigation. He was given three years with a non-parole period of one year. He was ordered to pay back a laughable $2,500, which I suppose was all the money that they could 100% prove it taken. It doesn't seem like much when you're in prison for a year, does it? Dismembered appendices. Number one. Detective Jasper, along with Patterson, had been greenlighting a prolific housebreaker in the area pretty much from the day he got out of prison. It seems from the evidence that he'd set this burglar onto the house of a friend of his girlfriend's. Also, one of the last things he'd tried to corruptly obtain was a diamond ring. It's interesting to speculate that he might have been intending to propose to this very same girlfriend with a stolen diamond ring. <laughs> Dude. Number two. Patterson lost his badge at some point early in his career and he applied for a new one. A few years later, he found it in his house. Instead of handing it over, he sold it to the same burglar who had indicated an interest in using it to approach and question people. Another criminal, codenamed M10, had asked people for some police jackets for use as fancy dress, but both these jackets and the badge, the one we saw in the face police raid on the dance party described in the very beginning of this episode. Oh my god. The corruption is just at every level, isn't it? Number three. Sydney in general was in the grip of a massive heroin epidemic in the late 90s. Huge amounts of high-purity supply were flooding in through container ports or being flown in via drug mules. At one point, it was estimated that there were around 12,000 doses a month. The conduct of these police officers was a small but important part in fueling that epidemic, and the young man dead in his apartment at the top of the episode was one of several of my friends who fell victim to it. 4. If it seems like the New South Wales police force got pretty rough handling throughout this episode, that's probably correct. The fact is that only a small number of corrupt officers can do a hell of a lot of damage. Operations like Operation Florida did a great deal to reach down to the grassroots level and pluck out many of these corrupt officers, and the force today enjoys a solid and well-deserved reputation as one of the premier law enforcement agencies in the Southern Hemisphere. Good, but it's so crazy how long and how bad this was in Australia. Like, what? <laughs> this has been an episode of The Casual Criminal. It's a bit different to our normal stuff. I enjoyed it. It felt like, uh, you know less murder i mean there's still death and horrible corruption which is never a nice thing but less death which is always a treat <laughs> a nice little break anyway thank you so much for uh, watching or listening however you get it if you are listening to this as a podcast why not consider leaving a review wherever you get your podcast that would be grand and i'll see you next time seeking the truth never gets old introducing june's journey the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.